0: You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So yesterday we had our Mahogany Bay Resort offering in Belize. We had the webinar yesterday and it was a great turnout. And so thanks to everyone who showed up. And if you are an accredited investor and are interested in investing in an internationally recognized name brand affiliated resort, Join Investor Club, you know, wealthformula.com to get more information. You can also listen to episode 37 of this podcast to hear an interview with the developer. Lots of deals coming through the pipeline on Investor Club, so don't miss out on these opportunities. You can also go to wealthformula.com to get our weekly newsletter and download a special report on how to legally save thousands of dollars in taxes. And finally, you can order a free copy of of George Newberry's Burn Zones, the book that every real estate investor must read. And if you sign up for that, he will send you a copy of this book, which is really fantastic. And I really do believe that everybody really ought to read it if you're going to be in the real estate investing arena at all. He will send you a copy to your door. By the way, American Home Preservation is now sponsoring us. I feel good about this because over the past few years, I have invested literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in this fund and have gotten a monthly check at 12% annualized, which is pretty darn good. It's sort of addicting, in fact, and it's also a good cause. The fund buys underperforming notes, and instead of kicking people out of their closing homes keeps them in their homes with renegotiated rents and rent-to-own options. So you can make 12% and help someone in need along the way. Can't beat it. Go to ahpfunding.com. That's ahpfunding.com. Now, wherever you stand on the political spectrum, you must admit that the Trump presidency has already demonstrated that it is going to do things differently in the next four years. Curiously though, history shows us that presidents have very little to do with the state of the economy. Mostly they're just in the right place at the right time or vice versa. Now let's take Bill Clinton for example. Now Clinton's term coincided with the rise of the internet and the dot-com economy. So lucky for him, he got out before the bubble burst. But during his eight years in office, Clinton dismantled some of the most significant pieces of financial regulation we had. And we didn't see the negative impacts of that until 2008. For example, the repeal of Glass-Steagall legislation, which occurred in 1999. Glass-Steagall was enacted by the United States Congress in 1933 as part of the 1933 Banking Act that separated commercial and investment banking. It restricted affiliations between banks and security firms, which sounds like a good idea, right? But what does that mean, you might ask? Well, quite simply, the repeal of Glass-Steagall in 1999 made it possible for the big banks to become, quote, too big to fail, unquote. So, without this repeal, what this means is the global financial meltdown of 2007-2008 would have not been possible. But in November of 1999, during that fantastic dot-com run, Clinton declared publicly that the Glass-Steagall law was no longer appropriate. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not dissing Willie. I mean, I actually kind of like Bill Clinton, actually. So my point is just that most people judge presidents based on things which they had little to do with. For example, the dot-com era in the case of Clinton. We all give Clinton a great You know, stamp of approval for being president at a time when the economy was awesome. Right. But the reality was that he was in the right place at the right time. And some of the legislation that he actually was really responsible for took us down, you know, a decade later. So on the other hand, then there's uh, first George Bush. He got elected just as we were entering a recession. Was that his fault? No, it wasn't. You know, economists will tell you that he simply got caught in the crosshairs of an oncoming recession. What if he was elected in 1992 instead of 1988? I mean, he would have been he would have been like Clinton, right? He would have been a rock star. Now, in the case of Trump, we may actually be looking at something a little bit different. If indeed he goes through with massive infrastructure projects, we will see a direct impact for better or for worse. I don't know. On the economy, the Trump effect has already made an impression. The dollar saw its worst month in decades. Why? Because Trump has repeatedly suggested that other currencies like the euro and the yen are all undervalued. And what that really means is that when Trump says that the other currencies are undervalued, what it means is that our dollar is overvalued and that the dollar should be weaker. And this, of course, goes against this strong dollar policy that has been really the rule since the Reagan administration. Trump is clearly advocating for the weak dollar and the markets see it. And that's why we're seeing a sell off of the dollar as a result. You might be wondering, by the way, why would he want a weak dollar? And is that some kind of an insult? No, it's not at all. What happens is if we have a weak dollar, it makes it easier for us to export things. So as you know, Trump is big into the manufacturing in the U.S. He wants to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. So if we make stuff, but the dollar is too strong, we won't be able to export it. So it makes sense that he's looking for a weak dollar policy. Anyway, what we do know about Trump is that he is really bullish on these you know, infrastructure projects he's been talking about, you know, rebuilding bridges and roads and all that sort of stuff. So what does that mean? First, infrastructure projects mean inflation almost by definition. So let's back up. What do I mean by that? Well, so quantitative easing, right? The fancy word for printing money. It didn't really work well. And you might wonder why printing billions of dollars would not have, created inflation by essentially you know, watering down the dollar. Well, the reason is that the money was lent to the banks. That's how quantitative easing works. The money doesn't go out to the public, goes to the banks. The bank, in turn, used it to improve their own balance sheets and never really started lending the way the Fed anticipated it would. Infrastructure projects, on the other hand, mean that the government is going to literally inject money directly into the economy. Think of the construction of bridges, et cetera. You put a lot of people to work, along with manufacturers, and ultimately that money all spills over to the rest of the economy. As, and then, you know, because basically people are spending their new earned money, and that helps other businesses as well. That's why this kind of fiscal policy is referred to by some as helicopter money, because it's literally dropping money, into the world. It's just dropping it into the US. And if it's done, which it sounds like it will, it will almost certainly stimulate the economy, but will also almost certainly stimulate inflation. So, as a real asset investor, you know, we don't really fear inflation because we're hedged against it, right? I mean, if you own rental property and inflation goes up, well, so do your rents. In fact, inflation will. Erode your debt. So having a mortgage is a great idea when inflation increases. But how do interest rates behave through all of this? Well, everyone is so fixed on the Federal Reserve and what they're saying and what they're doing. But the reality is the interest rates have actually a lot more to do with the bond markets than they do with the Fed's you know, yearly 25 basis point increase that gets everybody up in arms. So what determines what interest rates will be and how will that affect you and your ability to buy real assets in the coming years? These are questions that I think are good, and I wanted to get somebody on the show who I thought was an expert. So when we come back, we're going to talk to James Ang of Old Capital Lending about interest rates and generally about mortgages and how they work and how you qualify for them. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back, everybody. Today, my guest is Mr. James Ang. Now, James is senior director for old capital lending in Plano, Texas. And I've been lucky enough to work with James for the last couple of months for some of my deals that I've been looking at in Texas. And, you know, he's just a really knowledgeable guy and he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. He knows. You know, the players in the area, it's a big advantage to have them on your side. The other reason that I like working with James is that he's actually really, really good at explaining things and making things very simple. You know, sometimes lenders can get a little bit wonky with their terminology and and James is good at bringing things down to level. So I, I asked him to come on the show today because a lot of people have questions and have asked me questions about financing in particular for multifamily, you know, larger Complexes. So, James, thanks for
1: being with us today. Great. Thanks a lot, Buck. Thanks for having me and I appreciate the introduction and invitation.
0: Great. Great. Now, James, so let's jump right into it. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are used to, you know, financing for single family houses, their duplexes, and so on and so forth. But, you know, my show doesn't really lend itself to that audience. We're really looking at, you know, syndications and some of the people who are on are actually looking to syndicate themselves or they're looking at larger complexes. Can you give us a sort of broad strokes difference between lending and the sort of four or less unit arena versus everything else?
1: Sure. So, I mean, on one to four units, such as a duplex, I mean, the financing really is the same. A single family. So these loans are 15, 30 years, fully amortizing, recourse loans. In today's market, you know interest rates are probably three and a half to four percent on these types of loans, and these properties are really valued just on you know comparative market analysis or you know sale comp analysis. So for these types of properties, it's going to be recourse for the borrower, and so. On these loans, I mean, you're fully amortizing recourse and interest rates of three and a half to four. You know, on multifamily, it really opens up a big difference because it's really, you're going to be looking at the cash flows of the property and what they're generating. So typically, the LTV will be 75 to 80% and a debt service of 125 um, let's
0: back up a little bit just to sort of for people who are less familiar with this a couple of things that you said that I always want to hammer home one of the things that James said here was that first and foremost with properties that are four uh, units or less the way they're appraising is no different than the way you appraise your own house somebody comes in and takes a look at what's in the neighborhood and they say well It's worth this much. Okay, that's one of the reasons I don't like the smaller ones, because it's too subjective. And what James is saying is that once you get past that four units, your value of that property is not about what people think. It's about what people are paying for dependent on a certain cash flow. Now, the other thing you were talking about, you you mentioned, is a recourse loan. And a recourse loan is simply, of course, our typical loan where we sign and we guarantee something goes wrong with the property and, you know, they're going to come back and get us. James is going to come and knock at your door and he's going to take you. <laughs> he's going to take you down. Right. So those are the things. An LTV loan to value loan to value is simply you know, the opposite of how much you have to put down. So if he says 75% LTV, what he's saying is 25% down on the deal. So sorry to interrupt you there, James. I just want to make sure that we capture all of this info because we got, you know, some of these, uh, you know, financially illiterate doctors like me on, make sure that we all get it.
1: No problem. No problem. And one other thing, just on commercial loans, so anything five units or above on multifamily and then, you know, an office, retail, industrial property is really considered a commercial property. And these loans are typically five to 10 years with amortizations of 20, 25, or 30. So we're on the single family side or one to four unit side. Those are fully amortizing. Most of your commercial loans are only going to be loan terms of five to 10 years.
0: Right. So let's talk about some of the products when we get into that commercial area. And you know, say I'm looking at a building and it's you know 30 units and it's two million dollars versus 300 units going for 25 million dollars. What sort of the spectrum of loan products that you typically would see? In, you know, going from one to the other.
1: Sure. So really, there's four big buckets that people are going to go to for financing. So the first bucket is Fannie Mae. Second is Freddie Mac. And third is going to be your regional or local bank. And then your fourth is the CMBS market. So for really apartments and multifamily five units and above, the majority of people for non recourse are going to go Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And then if the property or the borrower cannot qualify, then they will go with a regional or local bank. Those are the big buckets that are available. And on the CMBS market, really those are for office industrial retail. That's a non-recourse option. And if a borrower does not qualify for a recourse loan on those properties. So So
0: is there a difference between Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, or is it just all one and the same?
1: So they have different programs. So Freddie Mac has a small balance program, for example, that will not roll in rehab into the loan, whereas Fannie Mae has a has a program that will. So they just have different parameters and loan programs. So you just have to understand which one fits for your specific property and your investment strategy. So some of them just have different you know, loan sizings and interest rates and, you know, different exit strategies in terms of prepayment penalties. And so you just have to really weigh the pros and cons of each and then figure out which one works better for your specific scenario.
0: And in terms of regional banks, when is a regional bank appropriate in the context of multifamily apartment buildings?
1: Yeah. So on regional banks, a lot of people, the, I mean, we can talk a little bit about how you qualify for yeah, a right. Fannie Mae or Freddie mm-hmm. Mac. And then that will open up the box that when it doesn't qualify for those, then you can go to a regional bank. Right before so
0: that a, though, I want you to tell me the difference between recourse and non-recourse and what exactly that means. Cause that gets thrown around a lot and I want to make sure that that's fairly qu- uh, clearly defined.
1: Sure. So on a non-recourse loan, if, if the bank forecloses on the property, you are not personally responsible for any deficit. So let's say you purchase a property for $5 million in 2007, get a loan for four, the property value drops to $3 million after a couple of years, and the bank forecloses. So on a non-recourse loan, you're not going to be personally responsible for that $1 million deficit. So they won't be able to come after you know, your balance sheet, let's say you have assets and stocks or other properties, they're not going to be able to come after you for that million dollar deficit. So while it doesn't have an impact on your balance sheet at the time, it does impact your ability to do future deals. So, I mean, still, you know, giving back a property it still hurts you overall, but it doesn't personally impact your balance sheet.
0: No, but you do have to sign on those, right? I mean, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a little confusing. You see non-recourse deals, but then they still need signatures on there. And so if there's no recourse, then what's the point of the
1: signature? So the signature is really, so you're still, even on a non-recourse loan, you're still going to sign carve-outs. So there's going to be carve-outs for fraud. There's going to be carve-outs for any sort of environmental liability that comes up on a property that is your doing. And so in those specific situations, then the loan can become recourse. Right. But if you follow the loan documents and you do everything that you say you're going to do in the loan documents, then they cannot come after you for that difference if they foreclose.
0: Got it. So the key here is that if you're going to sign on a loan, particularly if you're signing for somebody else, you better trust them. You better um, trust
1: them because, yeah, because especially if you're not going to be doing the day-to-day operations or managing the manager on-site, then yes, you need to trust that general partner.
0: Right, right. All right, so let's go back to where we left off here. Now, really what this comes down to is let's talk about the qualifying components of a non-recourse loan because as I understand it and certainly the way I'm looking at it, The only thing that I'm really interested in is non-recourse loans that tend to fit, you know, the profile of a larger multifamily building. So, so say I want, say I've identified a, you know, $10 million building. Now it, it seems to look good on paper. What's my next step and how am I going to qualify for a loan?
1: Okay. So it's really for Fannie and Freddie, number one, the property has to qualify. So when you're purchasing that $10 million property, it's got to be 90% occupied for the last 90 days. So they want to see a stable property. There can't be a large amount of rehab. So typically 5000 a unit is sort of your max rehab. I mean, we've gone up higher, but that's where Fannie likes to do it. And that rehab usually needs to be completed in the first year and then the loan amount has to be above a million. So that's number 1, the property's got to qualify. So that's what we look at in terms of, you know, when we're analyzing property for a new loan is we look at the current rent roll for the occupancy and then we look at the T12 or trailing 12 financials to figure out, you know, what this property can qualify
0: for. What if the occupancy is, you know, 80% but it's still cash flowing? I mean, is there a minimum occupancy and that sort of thing?
1: Typically it's 90. Okay. So, I mean, there are exceptions that you can make and and go to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for waivers, but just sort of the standard box that they fit into is 90%. Got it. So property's got to qualify and then also the ownership group has to qualify. So on that $10 million loan, the net worth of the group of sponsors let's say the loan is 80%, so $8 million, the net worth of that entire group of sponsors needs to be $8 million or higher. And then they need post-close, so after the down payment, liquidity of $800,000 or higher. So net worth of equal to or greater than the loan amount, and post-close liquidity of 10% of the loan amount are greater. So that's sort of the first step for the ownership group. And then the second is in order to qualify for Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan, somebody in that ownership group needs to have prior multifamily experience, the mm-hmm. so prior ownership experience. And so the property's got to qualify and the ownership has to qualify. And then they can get a non-recourse Fannie or Freddie Mac loan.
0: And it's not just experience. If you're looking at 200-unit building and you've had experience with you know, 20 units and that sort of thing, you may not qualify because you don't have the experience with the larger, I mean, I, well, how does that work exactly? Because I know a lot of people are trying to I would, say it's, I would yeah. say it's
1: comparable experience. So on something like that, what would be ideal is if you bring maybe one person on your team that has signed on a loan and has ownership experience in a similar size building. Got it. Size.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the net worth requirements because we've actually talked a little bit about that in terms of my stuff. You know, I don't like to keep a lot of cash around and I don't do stocks and bonds. So, and I'm just kind of throwing this out there because I think some people out there might have the same issue. What my dilemma was, was that most of my money was tied up in various things that are not actually considered liquidity. So the net worth part was fine, but the liquidity I had to figure out how to free up because that's pretty specific what is considered liquidity. So for example, I had, you know, quite a bit of money in some funds that were private placements, and those didn't actually count towards liquidity. Right? I mean, so what counts towards liquidity and what counts towards net worth?
1: So net worth, they're a little bit more flexible, right? So if you have businesses, if you have, you know, your home, other assets in real estate. Those things will add up to your net worth and they don't really ask for, let's say, an appraisal on your business or even your real estate, right? So as long as it makes sense and you can justify it and you, and you think it's reasonable, the net worth is not tested as heavily as the liquidity. So the liquidity, they're going to ask for the last two months of bank statements for all of your accounts for especially your savings checking, brokerage accounts that are non-retirement. So those are the ones that they really count on. And anything outside of that is really an exception. Right. So if you have liquidity sitting in, let's say, life insurance or some of these other vehicles, then it's going to be a little bit more difficult for them to count that. Is that They're right? Gonna, Even the
0: uh, liquid cash values on life Cash
1: value, life insurance, I've seen them count some of those, but in typical situations, we usually just rely on you know bank statements for the liquidity.
0: Somebody asked me the other day if precious metals count because a s- significant amount of that person's liquidity was in precious metals. So, how does that work? Say you've got a hundred thousand dollars of gold sitting somewhere; you can't count that.
1: I think if you could show a statement of it, it could possibly because it, I mean, really, what they're looking for is can you liquidate this without penalty? In a short amount of time, and support this property. So that's what they're really looking at. And before we counted a person's precious metals, we'd probably start a couple other places before having to get to that to that level. So a majority of our ownership groups that we work with, the net worth and liquidity, we're not you know right on the edge. So we usually don't get into to that amount of detail.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Got it. You're killing me, man. I, I mean, uh, so I got to keep these greenbacks and buy stocks. This is terrible. What do I got to do here? So the next question I have for you is how much leverage, in other words, how much down payment do you typically have to make on a property and what determines how much?
1: Okay. So on your standard commercial loan on an office, retail, industrial, 25% is your standard down payment. So 25% down and then the bank will give 75%. That's at your standard bank, and you know if you walked in and wanted a loan on any type of commercial property, 25% down. So 75% leverage. Where multifamily is interesting is Fannie and Freddie will go up to 80% LTV on acquisitions and 75% on refinances. So they'll go up on a higher leverage. I mean, really this comes down to they feel multifamily is more stable than a lot of other asset types on the commercial side. So they like the diversified income stream. They like the higher occupancy and the stabilized properties. And so they're able to go up to 80%. And the leverage really comes down to number one, the appraisal. So they're going to get an appraisal, independent appraisal, and get a valuation of the property and then the debt service coverage. So let's say your net operating income for a property is $125,000 and your debt service is $100,000, that would be a 125000 debt service coverage. So that's what they're going to be looking for at a minimum. So they're going to look at the appraisal and they're also going to look at the debt service coverage and that will determine your leverage. So even if, so let's go back to that $10 million property, if you're buying it for $10 million, but the debt service can only support a $7.5 million loan amount, then that's where the leverage is going to be. So they're going to look at those two components to figure out what's the max leverage that the bank's willing to do.
0: Now, there's other components in that. Isn't there like, for example, it also, the location of the property, right? Like a primary market or secondary tertiary markets?
1: Right. So that's the max Loan to value, right? So in, let's say for example, in Texas, you know, your main four markets, Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, in every market except Houston, Fannie Mae will go up to 80%, but in Houston, it's considered pre-review. Which limits the loan to value typically to 65 to 70%, even on acquisitions. So, yes, the location definitely can be an issue that will minimize your leverage as well or limit your leverage. Uh,
0: Another question I have is you know, there's sometimes you see these projects which, you know, I've seen some that are really interesting, but they're not going to qualify for Fannie Freddie because they might have 65% occupancy and they've just been poorly managed and you see this huge value add opportunity. Clearly, you're not going to get a Fannie Freddie loan for that. Are there products that you offer or that you know of that might act as sort of a bridge type loan there?
1: Right. So on a bridge loan, there's really two options. One is going to be you know, a recourse bank loan at typically 75% loan to cost. So they'll take the purchase price plus the rehab, give you 75% of that, and that'll be on a short-term bridge. So it's typically five years with interest only for the first year, maybe 18 months, and then it'll go to 25-year amortization thereafter. And then there'll be a balloon after those five years. So you're going to have to either refinance to a more stabilized loan, such as Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or you'll sell the asset. So any value add really between one to five million is going to be a recourse bridge loan. But once you get above five million, that's where it gets pretty interesting. And that's where you can actually get non-recourse bridge loans above five million, because there's lenders out there who are really going to be looking solely at the property. Right. And so they're going to look at your track record and experience and see that you've done this before, and then you can possibly qualify for non-recourse bridge lending. But the key thing there is that the property's got to be big enough because these non-recourse bridge lenders have limited buckets of money to lend out. So it's going to be more competitive. The interest rate, let's say on a recourse bridge loan, interest rates right now are about 475. On a non-recourse bridge, you're looking at probably five and a half to six percent. So it's more expensive, but then your personal balance sheet is not at risk.
0: Right. Now, with the re- those kinds of loans are those typically just regional banks, though. The recourse ones are those typically just local, you know, banks that are looking uh, in their communities.
1: That's right. So it'll be local banks based, you know, close to those properties or close to the borrower. So mm-hmm. if the borrower lives in, let's say, Chicago and he's buying something in Texas, you know, the bank could be right next to the property or it could be next to the borrower.
0: Cool. So listen, let's shift gears a little bit because, you know, you and I have talked about some of these things before, but I think they're interesting. From a lender's perspective right now, James, what do you think's going on with the multifamily market?
1: I mean, I think the multifamily market has had, you know, a great run since 2008, 2009, you know, increased significantly. The rents have increased, which has driven up the values. Cap rates have come down. So, I mean, almost everybody. It seems like the last couple of years, everyone thinks we're in, let's say, the seventh inning of the ball game, mm-hmm. and it just keeps. But we haven't moved. The last two years, we haven't moved. It's like we're still stuck in the seventh inning. So we're getting closer to a correction. And you know, economists are forecasting slower rent growth in 2017, so probably two to four percent rent growth compared to four to six percent in 2016, and pretty much flat to uh, you know slight increase in vacancy. So I mean, the assets are still doing well. The lending for B and C assets, so Class B and C assets, you know, those properties built in the 60s, 70s, 80s here in Texas, those are. Still doing very well, and Fannie and Freddie are still lending on those assets with no problem. The thing that's really shut off is the construction lending. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's shut down completely in Houston. There's still some financing available for you know, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio for those experienced developers in the best areas, but they're even cutting back the leverage. So, Two years ago you could get seventy five percent on a new construction deal. Right now you're closer to fifty five or sixty percent. What's interesting is that the construction is gonna peak in seventeen. And so in eighteen the number of units that will be supplied will go down, but the demand is still very strong. So it's hard for lenders have pulled back on the construction side, so the A stuff has slowed down. And what's interesting is the BNC just really has not stopped.
0: Yeah. What's interesting to me, and this is where I'm very curious about what's going to happen. Because as you know, I have an interest in the Dallas market as well. But what's frightening to me is when you look at these properties, a lot of the BNC properties, particularly when I see C properties that on, you know, current financials are selling, you know, sub six cap rates. Who knows, right? I mean, it, especially with Dallas, it's tricky because Dallas is growing like crazy, right? So maybe that is justified. I don't know. But what I'm looking at here is rates sort of creeping up. And when those rates creep up, it would seem like those cap rates are going to have to decompress just so that loan's going to be able to make sense. Is that right?
1: Right. Just talking about interest rates real quick. I mean, the 10 year was at, I think one of its lowest points, you know, in July of last year and before the election it was about 175 on the 10-year treasury and today it's closer to 235. So it went up 60 basis points, you know, post election. And you know, that was really driven by the inflationary expectations really when Trump comes in on infrastructure spending and an expected tax cuts. And so Bond investors are really wanting higher return on their money, which is the yield on the ten-year treasury, and that was really driving it up. So as interest rates go up, there is going to be pressure, especially on you know the class A cap rates, right? So let's say in Dallas, cap rates on A stuff is about five percent, Bs are six, and Cs are seven, right? Just on average. And so as your interest rate So prior to the election, you could have probably locked in 10-year fixed rate money at 4%, 4.25 in that range. And now after the election, it's really closer to five, right? So that gap between your average cap rate of 6% and 4%, it used to be a 2% spread right right, that you were getting between your debt and your cap rate. But now it's tightened up by another 100 basis points. So- I mean, it's definitely putting pressure on A, Class A, and then the B and C are having to adjust. Are you seeing them adjust yet,
0: though? I mean, have you seen them? I haven't quite seen that happen myself yet. It seems like, you know, sellers might still be trying to adjust to potential new realities.
1: Right. So a lot of the transactions that we were working on in the fourth quarter Let's say you put a deal under contract in October of last year, when interest rates were ten-year was 175, and you went you went hard with your money in November, and you had to close in December, and you you really had no wiggle room because your money was hard into the deal, so it was non-refundable, and you had to close, and so you had almost to accept that that price, right? Because sellers didn't really have to give anything. And a lot of new transactions did not come out in December. So a lot of transactions are going to be coming out this month in January and towards the end of January. And so that, I think, will show where the market is because everyone, instead of using 425 or 450 in their underwriting, is going to be using 5%. So interest rates have pretty much stabilized at this new 235 to 240 your treasury number.
0: Let's just one thing I want to do, because I find this incredibly confusing because I, you know, I don't I don't really understand the bond markets. Right. It's something I definitely want to try to understand, because it seems like if you understand the bond markets, you understand the economy right this is something that i find very confusing because for the layperson right who's looking in and watching tv and they hear oh my gosh the fed's going to raise rates finally and well gosh how is that going to affect my you know the interest rates on my house and if i want to buy something in reality it seems like you know those types of interest rates they don't play as much a part they play some role but not nearly as much as the bond markets can you explain how the bond markets you know, just go back to the basics here. How do bonds affect interest rates?
1: Okay. So let's try, let's try to think about how they, I mean, really it's an impact on the borrowing cost, right? For commercial real estate investors, right? Mm-hmm. So Fannie, Freddie, and even CMBS loans are packaged together into securitizations and then sold to bond investors. All right. So when you're looking at, the spread on the 10-year treasury, for example, right? You can buy the 10-year treasury at 235, and that is your rate, right? Right. That's your return on your money, Mm -hmm. right? So essentially risk-free, right? So it's backed by the US government. And then bond investors are looking for yield above that, right? right? So currently, let's say multifamily loans spread above the 10-year treasury is about 250 basis points or 2.5% to 2.75, depending on the loan to value. Uh Okay. So if a bond investor is willing to accept that loan at 5%, they're willing to take on that risk of that multifamily loan going bad. So they're, they're getting that return in essence, if the loan does not default, right? And so if they anticipate higher loan defaults, that's, spread is going to increase though. Got it. Right. So mm-hmm. right now the spreads have stayed the same. Right? So that two fifty to two seventy five has stayed the same, but then the ten year treasury has come up from one hundred seventy five to two thirty five. Mm-hmm. So the reason that the ten year treasury is coming up is really around inflation, right? So where people think inflation is going to be in the next one to two, three years that that was dramatically changed by when Trump was elected. So, when Trump came in and said I'm going to spend, you know, billions of dollars on infrastructure, I'm going to cut taxes. Essentially, that's going to increase your deficit, right? So, right. it's almost like a company coming in and saying, okay, we're going to reduce our revenues, which is our tax revenues, right? Coming in and we're going to spend more. Yeah. Right. So, than, but who who determines
0: yeah. those 10-year treasuries? I mean, how's that determined?
1: Your treasury is based off of investors buying that bond. Got it. Right. So mm-hmm. that 10 year treasury is auctioned on a daily basis and in a secondary market. Right. So Got it's it. really up to how much yield are they expecting over the next 10 years? Right. right. What are you willing to accept? Yeah. So back in, I think it was July of 15 when, you know, the UK was going to sort of exit the EU there was a lot of risk in the market, and people were you know flying to the safety of the u s treasury and that's' so a lot of there was a lot of demand for the u s treasury the tenure yeah. and that's when it dropped to i think it was you know let's say one point five i mean it dropped significantly in one of the lowest points, and so as the demand for that bond increases, then the yield that they have to provide is very low, right
0: yeah, but yeah. That's one of the best explanations I've had of the whole thing, James. So that alone I think is worth it. Hopefully the audience followed that very closely. But can you give me reference point now? So if I'm looking at a 5% rate for multifamily in Dallas Metroplex at this point, historically, how does that match up historically? I mean, obviously we know what the Fed rates are still very low, but When we look at the lending rates here uh, for multifamily, historically, 5%, where is that? Is that still pretty darn low, or is that getting to sort of more normal levels?
1: It's still low. It's Mm -hmm. still low. So, I mean, it's almost like the last six, seven years, we've sort of been lulled into this low interest rate environment, and I think the 10-year treasury average is closer to, to 4%, and today we're at 235 right mm-hmm. so we're still 165 basis points away from the average so maybe and the so, historical
0: averages on these interest rates should be closer to about
1: 7% yeah 6 or 7% the tough thing is is that while interest rates also drive you know returns for what people get paid on their other investments and mm-hmm. so as we think about interest rates, we also have to think about why investors are still continuing to invest in multifamily. Right. And it really comes down to the relative return that these assets are providing versus everything else. Yeah. Right. So if you're only able to get 2% or, you know, 3 or 4% in the stock market or bond market, but you can get an 8 to 10% return on a piece of multifamily property compared. So even though interest rates have gone up, the drop has gone from instead of 10% cash on cash, now you're getting 8% cash on cash. Relative, it's still three or four times what you're getting everywhere else.
0: Yeah. No. what point that I've made on this show before, though, and why I look at these cap rates very suspiciously is if you say historically these rates should be around six or seven percent and, you know, presumably we'll hit six percent, you know, seven percent, particularly if these infrastructure spending ideas that Trump has actually go through and we see all this helicopter money, you're going to see inflation and you're probably going to be back up to this six to seven percent that if you have six or seven percent as an interest rate, your cap rates have to decompress. You can't buy, you know, a five and a half cap or a six cap if your interest rate is six and a half or seven, otherwise you're gonna be upside down.
1: That's right. And the offset to that and the thing that you have to keep in mind is let's say a property, you know, they just to use basic math here, the value of a property is your NOI divide our net operating income of a property divided by your cap rate right so if your cap rate increases the only way that your value is going to increase is if your NOI goes up right. right so your NOI is driven by revenue minus expenses and if inflation comes into play the the question is going to be can investors drive that top line rental income higher so higher rents in these properties to offset that higher cap rate.
0: Right, right. Right. So
1: so investors have no control over cap rates. Right. Right? So cap rates are really what people are willing to pay in today's market. And so a lot of times people ask me about cap rates and what's the cap rate for this specific market. I mean, they don't have any control over it. So as an investor, I'd be focused on driving that top line revenue number. Yep. And if there's more jobs in the economy, there's higher demand for your product, that rent needs to keep increasing in order for these values to stay where they're at or increase above where they're at if cap rates go up.
0: Yep. Yep. It's a complicated tangle. It's a web. I think the point I'm trying to make is that when you look at properties right now, even a um, interest rates going up to 6%, is very realistic even in a year. Right. I mean, listen, right. I'm at how much they went up. So if you have a something that's right around currently, you buy at a five and a half, you know, if you buy a five and a half cap rate, if you were to use a 6% interest rate on that, you would actually, the leverage would cause you to lose money. That's what my big concern is when I look at cap rate compression. Right. So at any rate, what you're saying, which makes a lot of sense is, is that if interest rates go up to six, seven percent, What that really means is that inflation is probably going up more than that and therefore you'll be okay.
1: Yeah. Your rents will continue to improve as there's more demand for your property and because there's more jobs in the market and wages continue to grow along with that. So, And I mean, some of the offset to that is that some people as interest rates have come up you know, it's also a function of your LTV. Yeah, yeah. it's what you you can buy. So while interest rates have increased, a lot of investors, especially in the A and B space, instead of leveraging their properties at full 75 to 80% at these higher interest rates, what they've done is they've raised more equity for properties and started leveraging 55 to 60, 65% and taken on lower interest rates. So lenders will give you a better interest rate at lower LTVs as you're putting up more equity and there's less risk in the transaction. So that's what some investors had to do in the fourth quarter is that they just used lower leverage and got better pricing in order to offset these interest rate hikes.
0: Oh, it's interesting. Well, listen, this has been a great conversation, James, and I really do appreciate all the time that you've given our listeners Obviously, everybody, if you're interested in getting a loan for an apartment building, James, do you, you lend outside of Texas, too? I know because we've talked about things in Phoenix and, and some other markets. Is there there limitations to where you will lend?
1: No. as As a mortgage broker, we really connect with the best lending or financing available. So we lend all over the U.S. Great. And I
0: highly recommend you get in touch with James. James, how can we get a hold of you?
1: There's a couple ways. First, my email is j e n g at oldcapitallending.com. and then my number is 214-300-5035. And then if you just Google James Ng, Eng E N G, you'll find my whole LinkedIn profile, and that has you know blog posts deals that we've recently completed and my contact information.
0: And James also has some great white papers, which I encourage people who are really interested in and thinking about, you know, getting into this space and actually, you know, applying for loans probably should consider. So James, uh, once again, thanks for being on wealth formula podcast. Appreciate your time and we will see you everyone next week on wealth formula podcast. Great. Thanks a lot, Buck. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with James. I really did. Love learning new stuff from smart guys like him. But remember, education is only the first step. To really learn, you have to start putting this stuff to work. Now, you can do that in many different ways. If you're an accredited investor, you can and should join my investor club at wealthformula.com. We just finished our second webinar on Super Bowl Sunday, as we were talking about, for this Mahogany Bay Resort. And it's a great opportunity with a a world-famous brand affiliation. So if you're interested in that, you should sign up. You should sign up just in general because there's going to be a deal flow coming through there at a rapid pace. So again, go to wealthformule.com and take advantage of that. For those of you who are not accredited yet, because that should be your goal ultimately, there have been numerous opportunities for you to participate in that were presented on this show. you got turnkey Real estate in Alabama, you see chocolate farms today, you saw coffee farms before. And what about George Newberry's AHP fund that pays 12% and has a minimum investment of just a few hundred bucks? Folks, this is not that hard. It's time to take action and it's not even that expensive to start doing it. Anyway, that's my message to you today. I want you to take action, figure out what you're going to do. And that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast.